0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Nocturna. The Spinster Book by Myrtle Reed. CHAPTER Eight: THE PHYSIOLOGY OF VANITY. VANITY OF VANITIES, ALL IS VANITY. It is the common human emotion, THE ROOT OF THE PERSONAL EQUATION, THE BATTLING RESIDUUM IN THE LAST ANALYSIS OF SOCIAL CHEMISTRY. THERE IS A WIDE DIFFERENCE BETWEEN CONCEIT AND VANITY. CONCEIT IS LOVABLE AND UNCONCEALED. VANITY IS SUPREME SELFISHNESS, USUALLY HIDDEN. CONCEIT IS BASED UPON AN UNSELFISH DESIRE TO PLEASE. VANITY TAKES NO THOUGHT OF OTHERS WHICH IS NOT BASED UPON EGOTISM. Vanity and jealousy are closely allied. While conceit is a natural development of altruistic virtue, conceit is the mildest of vices. Vanity is the worst. Men are usually conceited, but infrequently vain, while women are seldom afflicted with the lesser vice. Man's conceit is the simplest form of self appreciation. He thinks he is extremely good looking, as men go, that he has seen the world. That he is a good judge of dinners and of human nature, that he is one of the few men who may easily charm a woman. The limits of man's conceit are usually in full view, but eye nor opera-glass has yet approached the end of woman's vanity. The disease is contagious, and the men who suffer from it are usually those whose chosen companions are women. Woman's vanity is a development of her insatiate thirst for love. Her smiles and tears are all-powerful with her lover, and nothing goes so quickly to a woman's head as a sense of power. She forever defies the salic law. Each woman feels that her rightful place is upon a throne. The one object of woman's life is the acquirement of power through love. It is because this power is freely recognized by the men who seek her in marriage that her vanity seldom has full scope until after she is married. After marriage, a great many women begin the slow process of alienating a man from his family, blind to the fact that by lessening his love for others, they add nothing to their own store. The filial and fraternal love is not to be given to anyone but mother and sisters. They have no place in a man's heart that another woman could fill. The destroyer simply obliterates that part of his life and offers nothing in its place. The achievement sometimes takes years, but it is none the less sure. Later it may be extended to father and brothers, but they are always the last to be considered. It is most difficult of all to break the tie which binds a man to his mother. The one who bore him is not faultless, for motherhood brings new gifts of feeling. "'sometimes sacrificing judgment and clear vision "'to selfish unselfishness. "'It is only in fiction and poetry "'that such love is valued now, "'or the divine blindness, which does not question, "'which asks only the right to give, "'has lost beauty in our age of reason and restraint. "'He had thought that face the most beautiful in all the world, "'until he fell in love. "'Now he sees his mother as she is, "'a wrinkled old woman,' perverse, unreasonable, and inclined to meddle with his domestic affairs. The hands that soothed his childish fretting are no longer lovely. Inattention to small details of dress, which he never noticed before, are painfully evident. The eyes that have watched him all his life with loving anxiety, shining with pride at his success and softening with tenderest pity at his mistakes, are subtly different now he wonders at his blindness. It is strange, indeed, that he has not realized all this before. To most men the awakening comes too late if it comes at all. Only when the faded eyes are closed and the worn hands folded forever, when mother is beyond the reach of praise or blame, her married boy realizes what has been done. With that first shock comes bitterest repentance, and he never forgives his wife. Many a woman who complains of coldness and lost love might trace it back to the day her husband's mother died and to the sudden flash of insight the adjustment of relation which comes with death the comic papers have made the mother-in-law a thing to be dreaded she is the poster attached to the matrimonial magazine which inspires would-be purchasers with awe many an engaged girl confides to her best friend that her fiancé's mother is an old cat. She usually goes still further, and gives jealousy as the cause of it. No right-minded mother was ever jealous of the woman her son chose for his wife. But she has seen how marriage changes men, and naturally fears the result. The altar is the grave of many a boy's love for his mother. Neither of the women most intimately concerned is blind to the impending possibilities. It is only man who cannot see." There are some girls who realize what it means, but they are few and far between. One in a thousand, perhaps, will openly acknowledge her debt to the woman who for twenty-five or thirty years has given her best thought to the man she is about to marry. Is he strong and active, healthy and finely molded? It is his mother's care for the first sixteen years of his life. It is the result of her anxious days and of many a sleepless night, while the potential man was racked with fever and childish ills. His chivalrous devotion to the girl he loves is wholly due to his mother's influence. His clean and open-hearted manliness is a free gift to her, from the woman now characterized as an old cat. It is seldom that the mother receives credit for his virtues, but she is invariably blamed for his faults. Too many women expect a man to be cut out by their pattern, the supreme mental achievement is the ability to judge other people by their own standards, and a crank is not necessarily a person whose rules of life and conduct do not coincide with our own. To this thirst for power may be traced all of woman's vanity. It is commonly supposed that she dresses to please others, but she often values the fine raiment principally because it shows how much her husband thinks of her. If a man's coat is shiny at the seams, and he postpones the new one that his wife may have an extra hat, she is delicately flattered by this unselfish tribute to her charm. From a single root vanity spreads in flowers, until its poisonous blooms affect all social life. A woman becomes vain of her house, her rugs, her tapestries, her jewels, horses, and even the livery of her footmen. The things which should be valued for their intrinsic beauty, and the pleasure-giving quality, which is not by any means selfish, soon become food for a vice. She gradually grows to consider herself a very superior person. She is so charming, and so much to be desired, that some man works night and day in his office sacrificing both pleasure and rest that she may have the baubles for which she yearns it is not far from absolute self-satisfaction in either man or woman to generous bestowal of enlightenment upon the unfortunate savages who linger on the outskirts of one's social sphere in the infinite vastness of creation where innumerable worlds move according to the fiat of majestic law there lies one called earth there are planets within reach of the scientific vision of its inhabitants that are many times larger There are some which have more moons, more mountains and rivers, longer days and longer years. Countless suns, the centers of other vast planetary systems, lie in the inconceivable distances beyond. In the midst of this unspeakable greatness, earth swings like one of the moats which a passing sunbeam illumes. Upon this moat, one-fifth of the inhabitants have assumed supreme knowledge and understanding given them doubtless because of their innate superiority this preferment also is theirs by the grace of an infinitely just and merciful god the other four-fifths are supposedly in total darkness though the same heavens are over their heads the same earth under their feet and though the light of sun and moon and the gentle radiance of the stars are freely given to all there are the same opportunities for development and civilization but they have not received the Enlightenment. To them must go the foreign missionaries to teach the things which have been graciously given them on account of their innate superiority. Man's life is a succession of narrowing circles. He admits the force of the heliocentric idea, for it is the sun which gives light and heat. Then the circle narrows almost imperceptibly, for of all the planets which circle around the sun, Is not earth the chief? This point being gained, he is inside the geocentric circle. Earth is the center of creation. Sun, moon, and stars are auxiliary forces, bountifully arranged by the giver of all good for earth's beauty and comfort. Of all the creatures who share in this, is not man the most important? Thus he retreats to the anthropocentric circle. Man is the center of organic life. AND IT IS EASILY SEEN THAT HIS RACE IS FAR SUPERIOR TO THE OTHERS. THEIR SKINS ARE NOT THE SAME COLOR. THEIR SHIPS ARE NOT SO MIGHTY. THEIR CUNNING WITH WEAPONS IS INFINITELY LESS. HIS RACE IS DOMINANT BY STRENGTH OF MIND AND ARM. THE DARK-SKINNED RACES MUST BE TAUGHT CIVILIZATION WITH FIRE AND SWORD, WITH cannon AND BAYONET, WITH CRIME AND DEATH. THEY MUST BE CIVILIZED BEFORE THEY CAN BE HAPPY. The naked savage who sits beneath a palm-tree with his hut in the distance, while his wife and children hover around him, is happy only because he is too ignorant to know what happiness is. In order to be rightly happy, he must have a fine house, carriages, and servants, and live in a crowded city where tall buildings and smoke limit one's horizon to a narrow path of blue. He must struggle daily with his fellows, not for the necessaries of life, but for small pieces of silver and bits of green paper." which are not nearly as pretty as glass beads the savage unaccustomed to refinement stabs or beheads his enemy civilization will teach him the uses of poison and that putting typhoid germs into the drinking water of an emperor is much more delicate and fully as effectual from this small circle it is only a step to the center and to that sublime egotism which has been named vanity man repeats in his own life the development of a nation he progresses from unquestioning happiness to childish inquiry and wonder from fairy tales of princes and dragons to actual knowledge through inquiry to doubt through faith to disbelief through civilization to decay he is not content to let other nations and other races pursue their normal development he insists that the work of centuries be crowded into a generation and in the same manner the growth and strivings of his fellows call forth his unselfish aid. Having infinite treasures of mental equipment gained by superior opportunity and wider experience, he will generally share his noble possessions. Is it personal vanity of the most flagrant type, which intrudes itself, unasked, into other people's affairs? There are few of us who do not feel capable of ordering the daily lives of others, down to the most minute detail." we know how their houses should be arranged how they should spend and invest their money how they should dress how they should comport themselves and more definitely yet do we know the things they should not do we know what is right and what is wrong while they poor things do not we know whom and when they should marry how their children should be educated and trained and what servants they should employ we know for what pursuit each one is best fitted and how each should occupy his spare time We know to what church all should go, what creed all should believe. We know what particular traits are faults, and how those can be corrected. We know so much about other people that we often have not the time to give due attention to ourselves. We neglect our own affairs that we may unselfishly direct others, and sometimes suffer in consequence, for nobody but a lawyer makes a good living by attending to other people's business. Theoretically, this should be pleasing to each one every person of sense should be delighted at being told just what to do it would relieve him from all care all responsibility the necessity for thought planning and individual judgment would be wholly removed the musical student would not have to select his own instrument his own teacher nor even his own practice time every author would know just how and when to write And in order to become famous, he need only act upon the suggestions for stories and improvement of style which are gratuitously given him from day to day by people who cannot write a clear and correct sentence. This thing actually happened. Consequently, it is just the theme for fiction. This plot, suitably developed, would make the nations sit up and send the race by hundred thousands to the corner bookstore. The cares incident to selecting a wardrobe would be wholly removed. Every woman knows how every other should dress. Her sure taste selects at a glance the thing which will best become the other, and over which the unenlightened may ponder for hours. There is no more common vanity than claiming to know some particular person. We are all things to all men, the two who love each other better than all the world beside, having much knowledge, but it is not by any means complete.' Souls reach out to each other across the impassable gulfs of individual being. And yet, daily, people who have no sympathy with us, and scarcely a common interest, will assume to know us, when we do not fully know ourselves, and when we earnestly hide our real selves from all save the single soul we love. To assume intimate knowledge of the hundred considerations which make up a single situation, THE VARIOUS COMPLEXITIES OF TEMPERAMENT AND DISPOSITION, WHICH THE PERSONAL EQUATION CONTINUALLY PRODUCES IN HUMAN AFFAIRS, THE IMPERCEPTIBLE FIBERS OF THE WEB WHICH LIES BETWEEN TWO SOULS, PREVENTING ALWAYS THE FULLEST UNDERSTANDING, UNLESS LOVE, THE MAGICIAN, GIVES NEW SIGHT, AMOUNTS TO THE PROCLAMATION OF PRACTICAL OMNIPOTENCE. THERE IS NO POSITION IN LIFE WHICH IS SECURE. NO COMPLICATION EVER COMES TO OUR FRIENDS which our advice acted upon, would not immediately solve. If our most minute directions are not thankfully received and put into effect, there is always the comforting indication of superiority. I told you so. And when the jaded soul revolts in supreme defiance, declaring its right to its own life, its own duties, its own friendship, and its own loves, there is much expressed disgust much misfortune predicted, and saddest of all, much wounded vanity. The dominant egotism forbids that anything shall be better than itself. No success is comparable to one's own, no life so wisely ordered, and there is nothing so sad as the fame attained by those who do not follow our advice. Adversity is commonly accepted as the test of friendship, but there is another more certain still, success. Any one may bestow pity. It is fatally easy to offer to those less fortunate than ourselves, whose capabilities have not proved adequate, as ours have. But it requires fine gifts of generous feeling to be genuinely glad at another's good fortune, in which we cannot by any possibility hope to share. Advice is usually to be had for the asking. In the case of a corporation attorney or a specialist, there is a high value placed upon it but it is to be freely had from those who love us and, strangely enough, from those who do not. It is one of the blessings of love, that all experience of another, all the battles of the other's soul, are laid open for our better understanding of our own path. But there is a subtle distinction between the counsel of love and that of vanity. The one is unselfishly glad of our achievements, taking new delight in every step upward, while the other passes over triumphs in silence and carps upon the misfortune until it is not to be borne. From the intimate union of two loving souls, vanity is for ever shut out. Jealousy dare not show her malignant face. These two are facing the world together side by side and shoulder to shoulder, each the other's strength and shield. Success may come only after many failures. The tide may not turn till long after discouragement and great despair. But in the union with that other soul, so gently bearing its inmost dream that the other may understand, defeat loses its sting. Ambition forever beckons like a will-o'-the-wisp. When realization seems within easy reach, the dream fades, or another seemingly unattainable mockingly lies in its place. But in the sanctuary of that other soul, there is always new courage to be found. Long aisles and quiet spaces lessen the fever and the unrest darkness and cool shadows soothe the burning eyes, and in the clasp of those loving arms there is certain sleep. Vanity cares for nothing which is not in some way its own, and it is perhaps an amorphous vanity, as carbon is akin to a diamond, that makes a hard-won victory doubly dear. Yet there are always syncophants to fawn and flatter. There are hands that will gladly help that they may claim their share of the result." But that realized dream is wholly sweet in which only the dreamer and the other soul have fully believed. Failure, even, is more easily borne if it is entirely one's own, if there is no one else to be blamed. VANITY OF VANITIES All is vanity. So spake the prophet in Jerusalem, and the centuries have brought the bitter proof. Vanity has reared palaces which have vanished like the architecture of a mirage. Vanity has led the hosts against itself. Where are Babylon and Nineveh, the hanging gardens and the splendor of forgotten kings? Where are Caesar and Cleopatra, Trianon and Marie Antoinette? Where is the lordly empire of France? Is it buried with military honors in the grave of the exiled Napoleon? Vanity's pomp endureth for a day, but vanity itself is perennial. Vanity sets whole races of men in motion hitting them against each other across intervening seas. One woman has a stone, no larger than a pea, brought from a mine in South Africa. Vanity sets it proudly upon her breast, and leads the other woman to envy her its possession, for purely selfish reasons. One woman's gown is made from a plant which grows in Georgia, and she is unhappy because it is not the product of a French or Japanese worm. One woman's coat is woven from the covering of a sheep, and she is not content because it has not cost a greater number of silver pieces and more bits of green paper besides the life of an arctic seal that never harmed her nor hers vanity allows a tender-hearted woman who cannot see a child or a dumb brute in pain to order the tails of her horses cut to the fashionable length and to wear upon her hat the pitiful little body of a songbird that has been skinned alive Vanity permits a woman to trim the outer garments of a little stranger, for whose coming she has long waited and prayed, with pretty, fluffy fur torn from the unborn baby of another mother, who is only a sheep. Vanity permits a woman to insist that her combs and pins shall be real tortoise shell, which is obtained from the quivering animal by roasting it alive before a slow fire. VANITY OF VANITIES, ALL IS VANITY the mad race still goes on it is insatiate vanity which wrecks lives ruins homes torments one's fellows and blinds the clear vision of its victims it harms others but most of all one's self there is only one place from which it is shut out from the union with that other soul great as it is there is still a greater force there is the inevitable conqueror for vanity cannot exist side by side with love End of chapter 8 The Physiology of Vanity